Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Today, as Russian President Vladimir Putin launches a military offensive in Ukraine, with reports of explosions in several key Ukrainian cities, we get in-depth analysis on what is unfolding, why, and the potential response from Ukraine and the West. And we hear from the head of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress about their meeting with the Prime Minister of Canada and other members of Cabinet tonight, and about what he believes Canada must do to support Ukraine. Since we've come to air, there's been developments in Ukraine. There are reports tonight of explosions in uh, several Ukrainian cities. We're still getting confirmation of that. Um, We've also heard earlier from uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin, who announced that he was beginning a military operation in eastern Ukraine, did not define exactly what he meant by eastern Ukraine. Uh, As you may well know, there are two provinces in the east uh, that are Luhansk and Donetsk that are, uh, or Donbass, the Donetsk area that are in fact under control of um, of separatist forces at this point, and 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 that those are areas that are under de facto Russian control. But it appears tonight that he's moving in further than that. So to try and analyze again, very fluid situation. It's not entirely clear what has begun to unfold. Uh, but to help us understand what is happening, I'm joined by Alexander Lenoshka. He's an assistant professor of international relations at the Belsili School of International Affairs at the University of Waterloo. Thanks so much uh, for jumping on tonight. I know this is a very fluid situation, um, but uh, what what have you been able to glean from what's on unfolding uh, in Ukraine tonight? Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. I wish that the circumstances were a lot better. Obviously, what is happening right now is quite staggering. I'm stunned. But what we know so far is that there have been explosions reported in various uh, Ukrainian cities, including even the capital city of Kiev, as well as the port city of Odessa. So this extends far beyond eastern Ukraine. Just for a bit of a bit of, ta- I mean, a bit of history here. Um, if you look at what's unfolding tonight, what do you think the plan is? I mean, clearly Vladimir Putin announced this at what was five o'clock in the morning. There, he announced it in the middle of a UN Security Council meeting, and right away we started to hear reports of explosions. So obviously, this was prepared uh, as as a, an attack launch. From from your perspective, what exactly is the plan here? Do you think? So I suppose the most optimistic scenario here is that Russia is launching compellent strikes aimed at trying to coerce Ukraine to, I don't know, uh, recognize Crimea as part of Russia or even uh, those uh, breakaway regions, either as independent or as part of Russia. However, precisely because Russia has postured about 150,000 to 190,000 troops near Ukraine's border along various vectors, as well as the very rhetoric that we're hearing from Putin, which smacks of ethnic chauvinism and imperial nostalgia, quite frankly. I think what Russia is trying to do is, in fact, try to aim at perhaps even regime change, quite frankly. Now, it's one thing to try, it's another thing to succeed. Ukraine is a massive country. It's a country of over 40 million people. uh, And regime change has a very checkered history, but that could very well be the aim here. When you look at some of, I mean, I think what we saw certainly in uh, in, in the Donbass is, is that there will be attacks on what we would consider to be key infrastructure. I think we're hearing reports tonight of gunfire in and around uh, Kiev's main or Kiev's main international airport. Um, would that be the, would that be Putin's strategy to come in and at least try to disable certain parts of the country um, to essentially prevent the Ukrainian army from fighting back? Because he knows that the Ukrainian army has has already voiced uh, an intent to fight back. Uh, but he's essentially saying, lay down your arms and no one will get hurt. Uh, that's That was his message tonight. Do you see that as being part of his strategy here? I mean, what would be, I don't think many people, I don't think everyone expected him to start actually, um, you know, the, at least we don't know for sure, but to start uh, targeting Kiev, it's a huge city, um, far behind where Russian, you know, Russian-backed sympathizers are now. Um, what do you think the military strategy is in all this for him? So the military strategy that has been articulated in various official documents is that of non-contact warfare, whereby Russia would engage in long-range strike uh, in order to uh, undermine command control structures that belong to the adversary, in this case, Ukraine. And so the thinking there is that one can shock and awe the adversary and indeed 
achieve cores of success. However, the response to that sort of strategy is that um, it involves basically hunkering down. It's you know, one thing to uh, launch artillery strikes. It's another thing to grab territory, to hold on to territory, as well as to pacify the population on that territory. So I think what we're seeing right now is indeed the opening phases of this sort of warfare where Russia is going to lean on the so-called non-contact warfare by way of long-range strike and artillery and bombardment. But in order to achieve coercive success, to say nothing of regime change, it will have to move forces into Ukrainian territory. And I think that's where things will get very difficult. The Ukrainian military has made advances since 2014. Obviously, it will not be able to defeat uh, Russia in set-piece battles necessarily, but it can still uh, deny particular campaign objectives. And perhaps it can um, melt into the city, so as to speak, where the fighting would be actually quite gruesome, quite bloody, but would certainly complicate Russia and its efforts to achieve its objectives. I'm speaking with Alexander Lanoshka, Assistant Professor of International Relations at the Bosseli School of International Affairs, the University of Waterloo. Uh, we're discussing a very fluid situation right now in Ukraine. Earlier, uh, just about a, an hour ago, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced that Russia will conduct, quote, a special military operation to, quote, demilitarize Ukraine, a de facto declaring of war on a sovereign country. For people, for listeners who may not be familiar, Ukraine is a massive country. There are more than 40 million people there. Kiev is a large city. This is a unprecedented, uh, one would think, unprecedented uh, military move in Europe compared to what we've seen over many, many years. Oh, I don't know if Alexander Lenushka is still there. Oh, I thought just... I thought you were ending the interview. <laughs> oh no, sorry about that. No, go on. I was just again. This is one of those. If you're still watching, I'm also watching Twitter at the same time. I apologize, uh, but just for listeners who don't understand the, the significance of what we've just seen uh, today. I mean, Ukraine is a massive country. This very much has as every opportunity to start something that we have not seen in Europe in a very long time. Right. No. So I guess we've gone accustomed to thinking that warfare is now gray zone and hybrid and that uh, a lot of it is unseen, um, that it happens in the shadows, so to speak, because we can't dare to imagine that we would actually fight with one another using tanks, let alone artillery and so forth. But the fact of the matter is that Russia has decided to conventionalize a conflict that was low intensity. It's certainly a conflict that has seen over 14,000 dead, but over an eight-year period. I don't want to diminish the severity of the conflict. It's absolutely tragic, especially for those living in eastern Ukraine. But this is a massive escalation, and it is unprecedented, at least with respect to the history of post-45 Europe. Uh, there have been military interventions, of course, in Europe, uh, but usually um, uh, intended to... Uh, suppress particular movements to get wayward regimes that are in particular uh, Soviet sphere of influence back into um, order. Uh, not an effort to annex territory at scale of the sort that we're seeing right now. So this is a, to... historical, a historically significant moment to be sure. I just want to share a quick quote that was shared by Caitlin Collins. I said just now, President Putin, this is President Joe Biden speaking. President Putin has chosen a premeditated war that will bring a catastrophic loss of life and human suffering. Uh, he says he'll speak tomorrow morning. Tonight, Jill and I are praying for the brave and proud people of Ukraine. Um, there was thoughts about the strategic importance of him trying to build a land bridge to Crimea. And now I spent time in Mariupol. I've spent time in Donetsk. Um, you know, we know what that would look like. Is there any possibility here, do you think, uh, and we can talk about the Western response in a second, but is there any possibility here that this will be a move forward to move back and consolidate a fairly significant portion of Ukraine, destabilize it permanently, uh, but then withdraw from to a, to a safer spot? That's an optimistic scenario. Uh, right. uh, I, I, you know, there's been talk of having a land bridge of that sort for several years now, as you know. I, I've never really been entirely convinced. And the way that Russian forces are staged or have been staged near Ukraine's borders suggests that, again, the aim is much bigger than trying to 
have that sort of land bridge uh, consolidated. Uh, and so precisely because we're going to see forces pour in from different directions, including perhaps Belarus, although I've not seen anything to that effect just yet, but because 30,000 Russian soldiers are there, one can presume that eventually they'll be used. Um, that Again, this is something much bigger than a simple land bridge uh, or, or anything that is simply local to eastern Ukraine. Uh, it's a bit astonishing to think. I have trouble grappling with it myself, uh, even though I've been very pessimistic about this entire crisis since at least October of last year. But it's one thing to talk in terms of hypotheticals. It's another thing to actually see it unfold live. Um, but I, I think this is fairly big, and I think this is absolutely a game-changing moment uh, for Europe or for the world for that matter. It's certainly the worst case scenario so far. It is. And I think people are going to be very surprised in Europe when they start waking up in the next few hours. I mean, we, we're going to have to take a quick break for the news here when, of course, we'll be talking more about Ukraine. And I'll, I'll speak to you after the break. But, but quickly, uh, in the last minute, what does the West or what does NATO, what do Ukraine's allies do now? So I think NATO will probably invoke Article 4, which calls on members to meet and to discuss the security set, uh, situation. I imagine Poland or one of the Baltic countries would invoke Article 4, but it really does not matter. Um, once that is invoked, all uh, NATO members would convene in Brussels um, to discuss the developing security situation. Already we have seen various deployments to the region. Uh, in order to reassure allies as well as to bolster deterrence. Canada's made one such announcement just yesterday. All of that is also to manage escalation risks, to contain the con uh, conflict. Obviously, what's happening is terrible, uh, but it's obviously in NATO's interest too uh, that this conflict remains localized to Ukraine. I've been speaking with Alexander Lenoshka. He's an assistant professor of international relations at the Belsili School of International Affairs at the University of Waterloo. Um, again, we've been just discussing just the implications of what's happening. Uh, what we've heard so far tonight, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, earlier uh, declared that he would conduct a, quote, special military operation to, quote, demilitarize Ukraine. Um saying Eastern Ukraine at first, what exactly that entailed wasn't clear. Soon after, reports of explosions from major cities, including Kyiv, the capital, obviously Kharkiv, the second largest city uh, closer to Russia, uh, as well as other places such as Odessa, Mariupol, uh, Kramatorsk. These are all cities that have, uh, that have relatively, that are obviously key cities in Ukraine under attack tonight. Uh, you know, this may be the day that had been, this was the day that had been warned about, uh, the, the allies, at least NATO allies, had been warning about for quite a while. And it did meet with a certain amount of resistance and a certain amount of incredulity uh, leading into it. Alexander, uh, what would be an effective Western response or NATO response? You know your NATO. What would be an effective NATO response now uh, to what's happening? Vladimir Putin's already said anyone who gets involved is going to suffer, uh, you know, se severe consequences, he said. Right. So, for one, sanctions uh, obviously need to be uh, ratcheted up because clearly those that have been put into place so far have been inadequate and not fit for purpose. Uh, yes, it is true that Russia has um, built up a war chest designed specifically to weather a new series of sanctions, but we need to essentially attrit that war chest down. It cannot uh, last forever. And indeed, uh, I imagine the United States and its allies, including Canada, will probably move on to target actual banks uh, that uh, are more fundamental to the Russian economy. So far, there has been some resistance, um, in part because the Biden administration does not want to affect ordinary Russians. But I, I believe that the sanctions now have to be scaled upwards in order to be commensurate with the level of activity that we're seeing uh, perpetrated by Russia in Ukraine. So that is on the economic side. On the military side, this is obviously very difficult because Ukraine is not a NATO uh, member and so does not benefit from the sorts of assurances that come with that membership. However, there is going to be a very keen interest in having a very strong firewall uh, such that uh, Russia will not be tempted to undertake aggression 
in the Baltic region or elsewhere along NATO's eastern flank. So I would imagine that we're going to see even more reinforcements of the existing military presence that we have in the Baltic region as well as elsewhere in Europe, like in Romania and in Poland. And I think I will probably even see the NATO response force, uh, rapid force, pardon me, uh, finally uh, see action. It has not been um, implemented since its creation. I think the situation now calls for it. Alexander, if, if you're to boil that down, I mean, what does this, what are are the next 48 hours going to look like? I mean, it feels like we're heading into what could well be uh, a war. In it Europe, is a war. Right. In, it is a war. In 2022. I, I, Right. No, this has been a war that's been happening since 2014, to be sure. And right. indeed, 14,000 have already died. Uh, whole regions of Europe have suffered uh, tremendous economic losses as a result. Uh, there have been 2 million displaced already since 2014. Uh, there are trenches that carve up the landscape in parts of eastern Ukraine. This is really a new phase in this particular war. It's an escalatory phase, to be sure, but it's, uh, it's just part of this larger conflict that we've been seeing unfold since 2014 between Ukraine and Russia. So for the next 48 hours, I suspect Russia will do its best and try to pummel um, various uh, strategic sites um, that um, are useful to Ukraine in terms of command and control. I think... Uh, you will see um, Russian forces move in and try to take critical uh, pieces of infrastructure like airports uh, and other sites uh, to essentially scramble uh, Ukrainian forces to cause some degree of chaos. I want to think that uh, the Ukrainians understand that this is exactly the sort of playbook uh, Russia will be running in this particular scenario. So their best bet is not to try to fight the war on Russia's terms, precisely because of the asymmetries involved. And so Russia might look like it's going to be very successful over the next 48 hours. But if we look back to 2003, when the United States unleashed its shock and awe campaign against Iraq, yeah, it, it looked very impressive, but it was definitely far from the end of the story. So I, I think it'll be too soon to tell, even by Friday night or Saturday morning, rather, uh, as to how this conflict will go. This is simply one phase. It's an escalatory phase, and it's an important one to be sure, but it might be too soon to draw any conclusions about who will win. I'm just trying to think about it. I mean, I spent time in that part of the country in Donetsk and in Mariupol and so on. And the thing about it is that if you were in Kyiv, it felt very isolated from what was happening there. And right now, the entire country, at least the, the major cities in the country, now appear to be dragged into this, to this conflict when it was sort of a, let's call it a sta sort of a static conflict for quite a while in those, in those eastern provinces. But now it, it is certainly now encapsulating a much larger part of the country. And the implications of that are hard to, hard to understate. First of all, you have displacement of peoples. We saw that when Mariupol, uh, when, when Donetsk was taken, the movement of people out of those areas was astounding. And I, I can't imagine that's not going to happen here. And then just the economic implications as well. I mean, Europe, Ukraine is a massive exporter of many uh, key things, grain specifically, but what kind of impacts are we going to see in the next 24 hours just on the markets um, and so forth, do you think? I haven't seen the futures, but I can't imagine that they're going to be responding to this news very favorably. Uh, I know that when uh, Putin announced that he'll be recognizing Donetsk and Luhansk as independent countries. The Moscow stock exchange fell about 15 percentage points. It rebounded since then, but I think uh, that sort of tells you that within Russia itself, there's a lot of uh, consternation about how this conflict is going to play out. And I think the feeling there is that it could either be really bad or just terrible. Uh, it's not going to go well hmm. for the Russian economy moving forward. I'm speaking to Alec Alexander Lanoshka, Assistant Professor of International Relations at the Balsili School of International Affairs, the University of Waterloo. We're talking about what's unfolding in Ukraine tonight. Vladimir Putin announcing uh, a little more than an hour ago that there would, in fact, be a military incursion into the into Ukraine uh, to, quote unquote, demilitarize it, um, essentially declaring war on an independent country. Alexander, you've been watching NATO for a long time. Did we get this completely wrong? Have we been underestimating Vladimir Putin or at least not thinking he would do this for years now because it just seems so outrageous that he would risk going 
into a into into a hot conflict with a country with his largest neighbor? Some have, uh, some have not. Uh, there are those in NATO who ha who have very strong feelings about Russia and about Vladimir Putin himself. They have seen him as uh, revanchist and imperial, and I'm talking mainly those in Poland and the Baltic region. Of course, there are those uh, who don't share those views, and those tend to be located further away uh, from uh, Russia's borders, mainly in Western Europe. And I think this is certainly a wake-up call for those in Western Europe or those who have been very sanguine about Russia, that um, uh, Russia is not a partner. It's just not, not under this regime. It's not a partner under this regime. You, you could do trade with it, but it's very unreliable and, uh, and it does not take part in international negotiations in good faith. Now, that's not to say that the Baltic countries were correct entirely in their assessment of Russia. Funny thing is that um, precisely because Russia did not appear to be achieving its strategic goals in the conflict in eastern Ukraine, that gave hope that if Russia struggled in eastern Ukraine, uh, there's no way that they would move against the Baltics, um, they being Russia, of course. Mm -hmm. but, but I think what we're seeing right now is a profound escalation in the conflict in Ukraine that will absolutely raise alarm bells uh, in those countries that are fairly small, have, have um, inadequate defense forces that can uh, repel a major attack, that rely on NATO, those countries are going to be beseeching their more powerful allies to do a lot more, both in terms of sanctions, as well as providing uh, military support in the form of forward presence. It's always felt like Vladimir Putin's goal here was not just to destabilize and essentially uh, paralyze Ukraine uh, in a permanent way, at least make it a vassal state to Russia, but also to try and divide and conquer the West, the allies, NATO. Uh, how much do you see NATO allies being able to stick together? We've seen some unity so far, far more than I think we expected. Do you think that's going to continue? I think so. I, 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 obviously, there will still be some range of opinions that people have about Putin. But I think that range has narrowed a lot just in the past few hours. Uh, I think we are under no illusions right now as to what sort of leader we are dealing with in Vladimir Putin. There'll be disagreements about how to proceed and what sort of strategies to adopt and what sort of risks would attend any additional military deployments in Central Eastern Europe. But I suspect that there will be unity, uh, much more so than um, we have seen in previous years. I, in fact, I think Putin has gotten into this crisis thinking that he could divide and conquer Europe. Uh, but I think he has misplayed his hand. He's overreached. I think Germany will probably uh, wake up today or what would be today in their time zone uh, uh, with a very new geopolitical understanding, one that would be much more attuned to the realities. Now, of course, we had a wake-up call in 2014, but th this is much more significant in scale and in scope that I cannot help but feel that 2014 led to some changes in German defense policy, for instance, but not enough. I can imagine now this will probably be uh, uh, a situation where those who have been crying for more um, support for Eastern allies are going to be louder and have a more receptive audience domestically. Alexander Lanoshka, um, we're waking up. It's certainly Europe. It's uh, 6.07 or 6.15 in the morning, 6.16 in the morning in Kiev right now. Certainly they're waking up to a new and uh, ominous, perilous day. Thank you so much for your insight uh, tonight in this fast-breaking situation. I appreciate it. And uh, I hope to talk to you soon. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. 
Welcome back. Listen, we've been following uh, unfolding events in Ukraine over the past 90 minutes. Much has changed. Uh, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, declaring a, quote, uh, strategic military operation into the country to demilitarize Ukraine. Of course, a sovereign nation of more than 40 million people. Uh, there's been then reports of explosions in different cities, major cities, including the capital, Kiev, uh, gunfire in and around the airport, according to reports, uh, as well as in Kharkiv, which is the second largest city in the country, and then other strategic areas, including Odessa and a very important port town called Mario which is actually right on what had been the front lines of where Russian-backed rebels had been stationed or at least had been uh, occupying territory for the past eight years. We have some footage, some sound at least, from an ABC report uh, from Ukraine to share with you now. I just wanted to play for you some of what they're hearing in Ukraine now uh, a few hours before the sun comes up. The sounds of war in Ukraine, sounds we all hoped we would never hear, obviously, although Vladimir Putin had been very overt in some senses about his intentions. Uh, these are sounds I think many of us hoped or at least you know, expected or hoped never to hear uh, emitting from Ukraine tonight. A little earlier this evening, there was a gathering in front of Vancouver City Hall, as well as others across the country, Ukrainian, Ukrainian Canadians, uh, of which there are 1.4 million uh, in this country of Ukrainian descent, uh, coming out to show their support for Ukraine. Uh, here's what some of them had to say this evening. This is nothing new to Ukrainians. They've been living under threat for eight years. Ukrainians will resist. They never want to be occupied by Russia. Nobody wants to live in the Soviet Union anymore. The Soviet Union completely violates all human rights. It's a dictatorship and Ukrainians are free people. It's a peaceful nation and we want peace by all means. But we also do not want our land to be occupied. If other countries think that this will be the end to the whole war, it will not because President Putin has imperial ambitions and he's shown it to the whole world. People should take it seriously because he's not going to stop at that. All right. Um that's one of the pro one of the demonstrators uh, in front of Vancouver City Hall tonight uh, discussing uh, Ukrainian Canadians' view of what's happening in their homeland tonight. Joining me with more on that is Ihor Mikulchishin. He's the CEO and Executive Director of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress. Thank you so much for being here tonight. This must be, uh, I don't know how else to describe it, but as a horrific night uh, for, for the diaspora here. Yes, uh, th thanks for the opportunity to speak to you. We're just watching the war starting to unfold. Uh, bombs are falling all across uh, all across Ukraine in the capital city, and uh, Putin has declared war on a free, independent European country. You know, in many ways, it feels like we've been waiting, watching this happen in slow motion for weeks on end. Have we? Did we do enough to try and, uh, and avert this? I mean, obviously not. But what what could have been done to try to pre prevent Vladimir Putin from from taking this action tonight? Yeah, it it, it has definitely, as you've seen, been escalating by you know the past number of months, the past number of weeks, the past number of days. Uh, our community has been calling on the Canadian government to stand strong with Ukraine, which they, they have been. We actually just had a meeting with the Prime Minister and, and mem members of the Cabinet tonight with our national board. Uh, we've called on defensive weapons to be sent, which have been sent, but obviously Canada needs to do much, much more. Uh, Ukrainians need to be able to defend themselves. Literally, right now, uh, that uh, Canadian lethal aid is going to be uh, critical to saving lives, saving Ukrainian lives. Um, Obviously, the sanctions uh, that have been talked about uh, internationally uh, coordinated yesterday, but this this is clearly a massive invasion that needs to be uh, dealt with in the most severe uh, economic punishment uh, available. Unplug Russia from the international financial system and and strongly sanction Putin, his cronies, all the leadership uh, that surrounds him that's that's supporting this terrible. I think we're going to be seeing war crimes happening in the next uh, couple of hours. Tell me about that meeting, and without going, I suppose you can't go into too much detail. But what, what sort of, you know, what kind of information were were, were the PM and the cabinet looking for, and, and what did you tell them about what's unfolding there? What did you feel like they needed to know tonight? Yeah, no, it was. A, I mean, it was a meeting with our board. We have a we have a statement out. Uh, it was a you know we had Minister Freeland, Minister Julian, Minister Sadie, Minister Anna, Minister Blasino, Minister Fraser. We talked about uh, all the scenarios. Uh, we talked about the scenarios that we're seeing now of, of a full-scale invasion. And actually, we ended the meeting early uh, as people started turning on their televisions and seeing Putin give another crazy speech where he decided he's, you know, he's calling it a whatever military operation. 
slash full-scale invasion of his neighboring country. So uh, it's a very open dialogue with the government of Canada. They, they, are, they, they stand with Ukraine, they hear us, uh, and I think it's going to be very difficult days ahead in terms of uh, the, the humanitarian crisis that's about to ensue, because there are 40 million Ukrainians, as you said, in a, in a small, uh, compact country, which is the biggest you know, in Europe. And uh, there's no way that this level of violence uh, will not be taking thousands of lives. I was going to say, when you look at the, you know, for those of us, for those of you who have relatives and friends and people in Ukraine tonight, um, you know, I, 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 was, I was speaking yesterday with, uh, with the former ambassador to Ukraine, Roman Waschuk, and he was talking about how for a long time it, in Ukraine, at least there was sort of this idea that this isn't going to happen. This is not going to happen. Putin wouldn't be this, he wouldn't be this reckless. And yet tonight, I think we're watching it. We don't know exactly what's unfolded, but I think we're watching something like it happen. I just wonder for all those out there who have uh, family and friends there tonight, <laughs> just just the, the the absolute roller coaster emotions people must be going through. Absolutely. I mean, we 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 want everybody to be safe uh, in major cities. Hopefully, people have been able to get to bomb shelters, uh, you know, and secure locations before uh, before their buildings are hit. We don't. We literally don't know what the scale of this is going to be. I think it's going to be from from everything I've heard in the last uh, half hour on, on briefings internationally. It sounds like a full on. Uh, assault, you know, rockets, tanks are moving, amphibious invasion of, of coastal areas. I, I, I would not be surprised if uh, Putin has unleashed all of the military forces. I think he had around 200,000 surrounding Ukraine. And, and uh, this, this seems to be uh, a full-on uh, war that he's starting. And, um, you know, uh, God help uh, our, our European neighbors in Ukraine uh, and, and everyone who uh, is I think of the soldiers, I think of the, the young men and women who have been veterans already and who are going to be called up into service. And it's just an unimaginable, well, it is imaginable. I want to say unimaginable. It is an imaginable scenario, which we have all just watched unfold in front of us. I'm speaking with Ihor Mikulchishin, the CEO and Executive <laughs> Director of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress. Tonight, we're discussing the events that have unfolded in Ukraine over the past 90 or 100 minutes or so since Vladimir Putin announced, uh, officially announced what is a de facto invasion of the country. Uh, we've seen explosions or heard reports of explosions in, in various locations, including uh, the capital, Kiev, uh, Kharkiv, the second largest city, as well as strategic areas such as Odessa, Mariupol, and other areas tonight. Um Knowing Ukraine the way you do, Ihor, what, what's going what's going on here as far as, as you can tell in terms of what what is Vladimir Putin aiming to do tonight, as far as you can tell, to to your country or to the country? Uh, I I think it's a it's a mass invasion, uh, a full scale invasion of terror. <laughs> um, he he gave a uh, I didn't see his speech, but I, uh, he gave a. A speech where he called on the Ukrainian armed forces to surrender. He used all sorts of words about he was occupying, he was denazifying, whatever. I mean, this is a man who who has uh, a hate on for uh, Ukraine and its people, and I I fear for my friends and family. Uh, I fear for anybody who the Russians will identify as a Ukrainian patriot, which for them, you know, they will say this is a whatever, you know. Uh, you know, a, a person to be killed or imprisoned or or whatever they're going to do, uh, and and um, any anybody who thought that his you know kind of you know bad faith diplomacy and kind of ongoing negotiation was going to lead anywhere, I think like this 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 shakes all of us to the core in the sense of uh, this is brutal violence. This is brutal violence in, in, a, in a Western European country. And I think uh, as, as Canadians, as members of NATO, uh, this is going to be a shock and, and change, change our world. Yeah, it certainly feels like Canadians are about to go to bed and wake up in a different world. It certainly feels like Ukrainians and the rest of Europe are waking up today on Thursday in a very different Europe uh, than before. Ihor Mikulchishin, uh, rather, if you could just hang on for a little bit, we're going to take a quick break. Sure. I'll come back with a few more questions for you. Uh, just quickly, before we go to break, a statement from the Prime Minister tonight. Canada condemns in the strongest possible terms Russia's egregious attack on Ukraine. These unprovoked actions are a clear further violation of Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. They are also in 
violation of Russia's obligations under international law and the Charter of the United Nations. Canada calls on Russia to immediately cease all hostile and provocative actions against Ukraine and will withdraw all military and proxy forces from the country. Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity must be respected and the Ukrainian people must be free to determine their own future. Finally, Russia's actions will be met with severe consequences. Tomorrow morning, I will be meeting with G7 partners and we will continue working closely and quickly with NATO and our allies to collectively respond to these reckless and dangerous acts, including by imposing significant sanctions in addition to those already announced. We'll be right back after this. I'm back with Ihor Mikulchishin, the CEO and Executive Director of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress. Tonight we're talking about events that have unfolded in Ukraine over the past few hours um, since Vladimir Putin essentially announced an invasion of the country. There's been reports of explosions in different parts of the country, including in the capital, Kiev, as well as in the second largest city, Kharkiv, uh, and other strategic areas such as Odessa uh, on the Black Sea, as well as Mariupol, another strategically important city uh, that the Ukrainian government had been, uh, been controlling at least since 2014 uh, when the original uh, conflict began, at least the original invasion of Ukraine began. Um, Ihor, we, we, Vladimir Zelensky has been the president of Ukraine, has spoken tonight very briefly. I was just reading this. Um, he's saying that he's spoken to Joe Biden. They are preparing international support and he's telling Ukrainians to stay home. The army is doing its work. Stay calm. Um, is there faith in, in Ukraine's ability to respond uh, with the backing of, of allies uh, to this to this invasion? Well, uh, I mean, Ukrainians will fight. Ukrainians will resist. Uh, they have nowhere else to go. They are they are um, they are uh, the targets of this of this violence. And um, I think you know, as you've seen in the past number of weeks, it's been up to uh, Ukrainian allies in the West, uh, uh, including Canada, to send uh, lethal defensive weapons to help them defend themselves. That's been our our main message: is to help Ukraine's uh, people and army defend themselves. Um, I, I, we don't know at this point, you know, where the where the missiles are falling, where the rockets are falling, um, and uh, you know, Ukraine's army is very well trained, uh, thanks to Canada. Canada is one of the one of the main, you know, through Operation Unifier, one of the main trainers of uh, the Ukrainian armed forces, uh, and uh, better equipped. Uh, but certainly, we should understand the the formidable uh, size and and uh, shape that uh, the Russian army has. I mean, it's a nuclear power, and um, it's it's going to be uh, it's going to be very difficult to to overcome that kind of wave of massive uh, of massive uh, Russian invasion. But I, I I have faith that I mean I've met uh, so many Ukrainian soldiers here in Canada who've come to learn about our rehabilitation services, about PTSD, about uh, you know sort of starting their post-military lives i have faith that the, the armed forces and, and the veterans will join them and that they will they will give putin a run for his money for sure i mean I, i'm sitting here trying to process all this by you know you know the way it is now with social media flying in front of you with all kinds of different reports some of them conflicting uh, it's did you ever imagine that this day would, would come hmm. uh yes <laughs> unfortunately yeah. Uh, I, 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 I mean, I'm not, I'm not being flippant about it, but this is, this is, uh, this is the latest version of a long thread of Ukrainian history, and also, you know, the the reality of what we've been uh, as the Ukrainian community uh, hearing from Putin for the last number of years. I mean, since 2014, he's fueled the war. Uh, he continues to, uh, he continued to fuel this war, uh, and and. Uh, uh, it shouldn't surprise, uh, you know, seasoned observers uh, are, not, are not being surprised by this. I think, you know, the rest of the world may have been caught off guard because we believe we're, you know, we, we grow up in a world where we believe that diplomacy matters, that diplomacy works, and you can always come to a diplomatic solution and, and negotiations and, you know, and more meetings will help. Uh, but in this case, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not effective because you're not, you're not talking to somebody who wants to negotiate. He wants he wants Ukraine, uh, literally, physically, economically, politically, and he has just proven he's willing to do anything. He doesn't care about his international reputation or what we think of him in the West, and uh, there, he, there he goes. 
Yeah, I mean, it's because one thing I remember being there a lot in 2014 was that there was sort of this idea, there was so much upheaval going on with the departure of Yanukovych, with the arrival of Petro Poroshenko, the elections, Maidan, uh, the protests. I mean, there was a lot going on in Ukraine, and it feels like mm-hmm. it has stabilized a lot in the last eight years, that this is not the Ukraine of 2014 that Vladimir Putin has decided to pick a fight with. No, uh, I mean it's a it's a it's a vibrant democracy. There's change. There's regular free elections. There's there's changes of government. Um, I mean, in 2014, just to remind your listeners, uh, I mean the the Ukrainian people rose up in a revolution of dignity and human rights, and and uh, you know after after extremely violent crackdown by police, uh, you know the the president of Ukraine then Yanukovych fled to Russia. He's been sitting in Russia for eight years and uh, took took these police forces with him, uh, and never to stand justice. And and Ukraine has moved on, and it is a you know a, a large, vibrant European democracy. Certainly not a perfect one, but I think that's the reason this is happening. That Putin sees that vibrant Ukrainian democracy on his doorstep as a threat to his cronyism to his authoritarianism uh, to the kind of police state that he's been running in Russia where political opponents are killed, poisoned, uh, or jailed. And, uh, you know, right on his doorstep is a vibrant, uh, you know, democracy that, you know, while imperfect, is is growing and prospering. I mean, that's always been one of the things we've thought about. Uh, the, the, the last thing is certainly with the, with the ouster of Yanukovych, who was a Russian-facing, or at least a Russian-sympathizing uh, leader. The, the one thing that Vladimir Putin does not want is a vibrant, strong, democratic Ukraine on his doorstep. Uh, and I think what we're seeing tonight is his abilities, is his a- attempt to try to make sure that never happens. One of the things that, that's been interesting, though, is, again, has been the idea of propping up the Ukrainian economy has become a big deal, because he will try to, one imagines, try to collapse as much as he can, as quickly as he can. And I, I, I absolutely, and he succeeded the last number of weeks. I mean, he, without even invading previously, he had already caused uh, major airlines to pull out of Ukraine, the currency to fall, um, you know, all the embassies had moved out. So he was already exerting the pressure and punishing Ukrainians without even without even uh, having invaded. And this, this is a whole other thing. And I, I think it's important also to realize that he isn't necessarily going to stop with Ukraine. I mean, this is, Ukraine is the most immediate target, but he has these kind of imperialistic feelings about, uh, you know, the Baltic states, uh, Central and Eastern Europe, and, and Eurasia. And, uh, you know, frankly, Canada is a neighbor of, of Russia's in our northern uh, hemisphere. And we need, to, we need to be very cognizant that this is not some kind of faraway problem in a faraway land this is this impacts our security here as canadians and and as as a global uh community you know that that fought these world wars to protect uh the you know human rights and borders and dignity this is all being literally rolled over with a russian tank i don't want to ask you to speak on behalf of all ukrainian canadians but on behalf of all ukrainian canadians what would like what would you like everyone else to know tonight Well, I, I think I've heard from all of them on my phone in the last uh, hour or two. I mean, I think um, it's going to be it's going to be a very difficult night. It's going to be a very difficult day. It may be very. It will probably be very difficult weeks. Um, we, you know, we keep the faith. We know that the Ukrainian nation has uh, lasted for a thousand or more years, despite all of the attempts to crush it. Uh, we know that our culture and our faith and our language uh, will survive whatever number of rockets Putin uh, decides to to send into Ukrainian cities. And uh, our role here as a community is to to support uh, you know our our friends, our relatives, our, and the strangers in Ukraine who will need our help. Uh, we have a humanitarian appeal. Uh, there are many international humanitarian appeals. That is the most important thing we can focus on, as our community has, you know, after World War II and other times. We need to. Uh, we're all going to need to be asked to do more than we've ever done, and to support uh, to support people who are really in need. Ihor Mikolchishin, CEO and Executive Director of Ukrainian Canadian Congress. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us tonight. I really appreciate it. Uh, our thoughts with you and the entire community this evening. Uh, stay strong. Thank you very much. All right, we've been following uh, for the past three hours. Really, this happened just as we were coming to air tonight, uh, events unfolding in Ukraine. Um, First, Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, announcing to the country uh, that he would begin military operations in Ukraine uh, to, quote unquote, demilitarize the country, uh, quote, 
interpreted by everybody in the West as an invasion. It was then followed by uh, by the sounds, at least, or the sounds and sights of uh, of attacks, at least of explosions in various uh, Ukrainian cities. Now the Russian military is saying that it has targeted air bases and other military assets and not populated areas. Of course, uh, also a little bit earlier, we uh, learned that the country is under uh, uh, martial law, that the president, Vladimir Zelensky, has declared martial law and confirmed that military strikes have been reported across the country and urged citizens in Ukraine to stay home if you can and not panic. Well, to look into this a little bit more, Christian Luprecht, is a professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University. He joins me now. Thanks so much for, uh, for for popping on on short notice. What a night. What a night. Yeah, good evening, Ben. I think it's what we had all feared. Uh, we had all hoped for the best, but expected the worst. And I think the worst is coming to pass here. Yeah, explain that, because I think we had, we weren't quite sure what Vladimir Putin might attempt to do when he was threatening to move into Ukraine. Uh, we thought maybe he would just stick to the areas that the Russian-backed uh, rebels already held, but clearly that's not the case. Yeah, I mean, the pattern would have been for him to do that, because that's been the pattern for him, for instance, in Georgia, uh, with Abkhazia and South Ossetia, the two occupied regions, the pattern in Moldova, where the Russians have long effectively occupied Transnistria, um, and you might also argue the, pa- the pattern in Azerbaijan and Armenia where so-called, in quotation marks, peacekeepers, Russian peacekeepers showed up. But uh, I think after that very angry speech on Monday night, it was clear that that was not going to be enough to satisfy Putin. I mean, this was uh, um, a very comprehensive case effectively for the delegitimization and the invasion of Ukraine. Not a case that has uh, any sound basis in history. I mean, effectively, Putin was rewriting history. He basically suggested, you know, there was a hundred years of wrongs here that go back to Vladimir Lenin. And clearly, he sees this as part of his legacy project. Uh, that he is going to write what he believes to be a historical wrong. Um, he lays out the case to the Russians. Some of this case is just complete paranoia. Uh, the Ukrainians possibly developing nuclear weapons, for instance, stationing them there. Uh, his obsession with how many minutes it would take a cruise missile from Ukraine to, uh, to hit Moscow. But it clearly suggests that he is almost obsessively... Um, thinking about uh, about Ukraine. And I think the, the, the challenge here now is how will this actually play out? Because he seems to have a lot of confidence that he's got this one in the pocket. But I'm not quite so sure. Now, the Ukrainians have made a lot of mistakes. Vladimir Zelensky has squandered all the political capital he has domestically and internationally in the last two years. Uh, the Ukrainian military has not reformed at the pace that it could and should have. Um, but the Russians, too, have problems. The Russian military has problems of morale. They have problems of maintenance. They have problems of modernization. They have a few units that are really good. They have a lot of units that are sort of pretty mediocre. Um, so we'll see whether this is the cakewalk that I think Putin sort of thinks he has, he, he, he has or whether this is going to get really painful and really bloody for the Russians. And I think the... The Ukrainian foreign minister, in my view, used the wrong words and narrative when he said Ukraine is going to win. It's not actually about Ukraine winning. Ukraine just has to make sure it doesn't lose. Uh, and if this is the case, I mean, so it's hard to even begin to understand the or begin to describe the geopolitical uh, impact of what's just happened in the last uh, several hours. Uh, but in the short term, um, what happens, what can the West do now? What can NATO do now to try to ensure that this isn't a quick victory for Vladimir Putin? To the contrary, NATO can and will do absolutely nothing for two reasons. Uh, President Biden already laid out the point very clearly in his infamous interview before the Super Bowl, where he said that if there is... So the reason that he's withdrawing all American troops from Ukraine... And I think when he meant when he said all, he meant all. This is why he withdrew the embassy staff, why he withdrew the trainers, uh, military advisors, special operations forces, because in his words, if there is contact between American troops and Russian troops, that risks World War Three. And Putin tonight in his speech laid out 
as much or his morning um, that uh, he made it very clear that if there is Western intervention in Ukraine, there will be a response like the world has never seen. And I think that means Putin is prepared to launch tactical or nuclear or strategic nuclear weapons. And so I think what applies to American troops, by extension, applies to all NATO member country troops. So as unfortunate as it is, um, I think the challenge for NATO and for NATO members is they're going to have to stand and watch and see whether the FIU Oh, we're just using losing you a bit there, Christian. Um, a quick last question for you before before we go. Um, so, what is the response then from the West? What can the West do to punish or to make this hurt, if anything, to make uh, and and is Vladimir Putin impervious to it at this point? I I think he knows what's coming. Um, I mean, the initial sanctions here were pretty mild. So I think what we're going to see now is, I mean, these were marginal banks, for instance, on which the sanctions are imposed. We're going to see a spare bank and FAUTB, for instance, sanctions. Um, But I think the real investment by the West here will be medium term. That is to say, while in principle, I think the invasion is popular with Russians because they more or less by Putin's narrative, the war is not. And so if the war comes not just with a hefty bill, both in terms of blood and treasure, but also in terms of uh, even more hefty consequences. I mean, Russians want the same thing that everybody else wants. They want a better standard of life. They want a better healthcare system. They want better education. Um, And so what Russians have seen is the exact opposite. By a regime that has not delivered for them and delivers only on the idiosyncrasies of its kleptocratic elites and, and Putin's sort of magnomania. And so the interesting piece here will be is, it is average Russians that will suffer, but can the West effectively undermine Putin's legitimacy with its own population ahead of the 2023 um, presidential election sufficiently um, that uh, that might uh, cause real political challenges for Putin himself, but even then, that's a bit of a gambit for the West because there's always a risk of ultranationalists trying to take over from Putin if they feel that Putin uh, is mortally wounded. So there really aren't any very good options. Uh, we're in a real dilemma philosophically in the sense that there only are bad options on the table. Christian Luprecht, um, that's a nice way to end it. Uh, this has been a night that has changed many things uh, in the world and in Europe. And of course, in Europe this morning, uh, in Kiev, they're waking up to a very different reality this morning. Christian Luprecht, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. Have a good evening. <laughs>